0: We'll be right back after this. I've actually been using today's sponsor for over three years and love them. And that company is Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear me say Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you might think, what's the catch? But the cool part is that there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They don't have retail stores or salespeople, which cost a lot of money. Instead they deliver premium phone plans directly to you. Say goodbye to your multi-hundred dollar phone bill per month and start using Mint Mobile where plans start as low as 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/fishow. That's mintmobile.com/fishow. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/fishow. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month, new customers on first three-month plan only, speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan, additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Now back to the show. The week
1: before we bought this is when the company that I worked for for five years and I decided to go our separate ways. So a week before we close on this, I no longer have a job and we're going all in on this 10-unit apartment building.
2: Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back
0: to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Patrick McGrath, real estate investor and financial independence podcaster who's making over $1 million on just one property that he purchased. But before we get into his story, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man?
2: Hey Cody. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy week, Uh, going to be another crazy week coming through this weekend. But last week I had to travel back to Mississippi for some unfortunate circumstances. I had a a family friend who was given a couple weeks to live, but it did highlight a lot of things that we try to push for on the show, which is like having a life that is flexible and also getting yourself financially stable enough to know that you're not really looking over your shoulder and worrying about what your boss or your company thinks about the moves that you're making, because to me, like I knew when I got that call, I was going to fly and I was going to try to see them before they passed away. And I actually got to see them at like seven, or eight o'clock the night that I flew in, and they passed away about six, eight hours later. So I'm just so thankful that I, you know, just did it. I just got on the plane and I went. Then I did get to, you know, spend some time with family and came back. Did Mother's Day with Leslie's family, and now we're getting ready to hit the road tomorrow. Actually driving to. Gulf Shores, Alabama for a 3-day music fest called Hangout Fest. So excited about that piece. How about you, Cody?
0: Well, first of all, sorry for your loss, but it is, you know, that's kind of what financial independence is all about is taking that time back to spend it with loved ones because the money goes when you die. So, gotta enjoy the people that you enjoy while they're living while you're living and Yeah, that's what it's all about, man. But for me, you can tell my voice is a little bit raspy. This past weekend, I had my bachelor party, but the unique thing about it was it was a surprise bachelor party. So I had one of my friends who got married last year. He's like, I want to plan your bachelor party. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. I'm not going to tell you where we're staying. I'm not going to tell you what we're doing. And the only part that got leaked was where we were going. We ended up going to Tampa, Florida, which is on the come up big time, by the way. I know My fiance, Lauren, has watched the show like Selling Tampa. It's like that Selling Sunset real estate show that everyone's obsessed with in L.A. Now there's a version in Tampa. It's like on the come up. There's a lot of construction going on there. And it was an absolute blast. Again, lost my voice. Definitely need a little bit of like a food cleanse and (laughs) not drinking alcohol for a little while because there was a, a lot of that going on. But. Great group of guys. We had a ton of fun. We had like a boat cruise and we had all these different activities that they had planned for me that I just kind of I was just rolling with the punches. I had no idea what we were doing day to day, but it ended up being an awesome trip. And now I am back home gearing up for our big leave to Bali, which is kind of like me and my fiance Lauren were doing like an elopement slash honeymoon hybrid thing. We are doing like our vows and we hired videographers and photographers getting married. Well, we're actually doing the official paperwork here on the mainland just because it was like going to be a huge pain to do it over there. But doing the paperwork here, go over there, do like the ceremony, the vows. We again hired like this whole crew to capture it that we're going to show at our reception later on in August. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on for me, too. It seems like we're as much as we say we're not going to do stuff, Justin. We're like, this is the year I'm going to slow down a (laughs) bit. It just it always happens like we're traveling every other week. And then we have like this thing going on, that thing going on. But again, it's. That's a first world problem that we're complaining about here. (laughs) Absolutely. But Justin, that's enough about us and what we have going on. Let's talk about our guest for today, Patrick McGrath. So what I like about Patrick and why I wanted to have him on the show is he kind of ties in real estate to financial independence. Now, we've definitely had some folks on the show who have done that before, but usually it's like either or. Someone's like really going down just the index fund, financial independence, nest egg route, or someone's just like gung ho real estate, but they don't really talk about the expenses side of things as much. They're not thinking about it with like the financial independence lens on. That's what I love about Patrick. Like we really dive into the numbers. He gets into specific deals. He talks about like if I have this much cash flow with this much deal, like these are the metrics I use. This is what's going to allow me to hit financial independence. And the one thing, if you stay to the end, that's really cool is he is buying a property
2: or he bought a property that's going to be making him over a million dollars. So there's a lot in here. And for me, one thing that really stood out, which ties into that million dollar property that you just mentioned, Cody, is kind of. Locality, like knowing your network, knowing your people, like he found this deal by hearing a conversation and then digging into it. And it's something where an investor from out of town or somewhere else may have never come across this kind of deal. I'm actually looking at a property right now in Mississippi that, you know, is not even for sale. Um, It's just something that we saw, we dug into it. My dad looked up who owned it. And I was like, wait, I know that guy. Like I used (laughs) to go to camp with this dude. And so I call him, he's like, Yeah, I would sell it, you know. (laughs) And so those type of things are something that really can't be taught and it can't be you can't like just copy from someone else exactly. Like you can't go buy the same property they bought. But if you keep your, you know, kind of ear to the ground as they say and you use your network, you never know when some of those deals might pop up. So be the expert in your own network, be the expert in your own area. And if you want to hear more from Patrick, listen to his podcast, keep up with his social media, or share this episode with a friend, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Patrick. That's thefyshow.com slash P-A-T-R-I-C-K. Take it away, Patrick.
1: In my household, it was a single parent earned income kind of household. So my dad was the one that worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom with us four kids So I always kind of saw it from that aspect, you know, and um, my dad always talked about money because it was, it was just prevalent, you know, he's in the tech area. And one of the life lessons that he always taught me was you always pay yourself first. And as I started working and going through my career, I really saw how that made such a huge impact on where I am today. And that's one of those things that I cherish is. At first, you're kind of like, oh, pay yourself first. That sounds easy. and doesn't sound like it's really going to make that much sense. But when you start off paying yourself that 5 or 10% first, it starts to grow as your income grows, as your side hustle grows, and then you start increasing that percentage. And that really has a huge impact on your overall financial journey. And that's the one that I think makes the most sense to me. And was something that was a huge, huge impact on the way that I kind of grew up and what I still do now by always paying myself first.
2: And as you were growing up, what were some of the, the interests you have, like the occupational interests, the things that you thought you really wanted to do in life?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I think when I was kind of growing up, I initially wanted to go to school for information system security because that's what my dad does, works on computers. And I was like, well, he's making good money and is able to support this family. Like, I should go do that. So, uh, I signed up for college and started taking the classes and would sit down and just ask the guy next to me or gal next to me, like, hey, how was your weekend? You know, this and that. And our personalities just did not jive on a level where I was like, look, I'm interested in this field, but I'm also like a people person. And I could just tell from just taking those classes that I wasn't going to jive with the people around me throughout my career. And that actually made me like totally rethink and revamp my whole like outlook on career wise. And that's kind of what led me
0: into sales. So let's talk about that for a second, because sales, Justin and I have talked about this on many a podcast episodes before. I think it's probably one of the best like W2 roles where you have like the highest amount of money you can possibly earn. Because if you're in a sales job and you have like these unlimited commissions, like you're paying on performance, like a lot of other W2 salary jobs, unfortunately, aren't. So was that your experience in sales as you start crushing it out of the gate and like you just love talking to people or you talk about how sales went for you during those early years?
1: Yeah. So interestingly enough, I was working at an insurance company. I mean, I had cut grass. I did all this kind of stuff. It came down to I was working at an insurance company and it was getting close to the holidays and I saw an ad on Craigslist, you know, Craigslist back in the day when it actually had good stuff on it. And it was for a sales job doing those remote control helicopters. They had the kiosks in the mall, but this was more at like J.C. Penney's and Costco's and stuff. So I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Make some extra money. So I went and applied and got the job and I ended up being really, really good at it. Like I was crushing it and it built up like a little team and everything. And that's what kind of got me going into, hey, maybe I should pursue this sales thing. Like I'm good at this. Let me try something else. And that kind of led me down the path into sales. And that's what I appreciated the most is as much effort as I put into it, my income, I saw that in my checks every month in those commission checks. And it sucked working that W-2 job, that nine to five, where no matter what you did, how much effort you put in all year long, when review time came, they'd be like, well, 182 days ago, you got stuck in traffic and you showed up late Or you took your lunch break a little too long, and we were going to give you five percent, but we got to give you that three, you know, because you're average. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to see this. But in sales, they don't care as long as you're performing. Like you could be the average guy with paperwork and let some things slip, but if you're the number one guy selling and bringing in the revenue, it really doesn't matter. And your check can uh, shows that. And that's really when I saw the power of sales my income just over a two or three year period just elevated. it just started skyrocketing when I started jumping into those next level sales positions.
2: And so how did you transition away from just you know the helicopter sales into what was the next stage of sales? And also I think it would be interesting to hear for somebody who is getting into sales or is interested in this career field like what are some things people can do in an interview process to land one of those sales jobs like what are the skills? That you can showcase in that kind of format it's interesting, right? Like that kind of interview is a little different, I would imagine.
1: It is. A lot of the times when you're going for a sales position, you have to be a self-starter, self-motivated. That's really the biggest thing. And you can't be afraid of rejection. I mean, rejection is the biggest thing that gets inside most salespeople's heads. And the way I would always get through that was to talk about the no's. Look, a no is just one step closer to a yes. And if you're in sales, that's really how you have to think about each and every sale is that a rejection is good because each one of those rejections is just getting you closer to that yes. And it's that resilience. It's that determination, that self-starter. And that's really what sales managers are looking for. You can shape all the other stuff. You know, you can teach people, you know, how to sell the specific product or the pros and cons and all of that, but you can't, you typically can't motivate and teach people to be self-starters. They have to have that internal motivation. And a lot of the times they have to be a lone wolf. They really thrive and can thrive with limited management and can really push themselves when things get tough. If that sounds like you, if, if you're resilient, if you can push through, if you can do all those things then you could definitely do sales because the techniques and all of that can be easily learned. It's that mental grind that gets people. That's when they fail. And my progression, it went from doing that weekend, selling the helicopters, to then I went all in and I got a job selling Kirby vacuums door to door. And that was like the biggest sales lesson ever. When you are literally knocking on someone's door, trying to convince them to let you in their house to then try to sell them a, at the time, which was a $1,400 vacuum. This is like 15 years ago or more, actually. That's rejection all day, just in your face, in your face, in your face. I did that for a few months and realized, okay, this was not for me. But then that led me down to the next path. I got a job. Working for Granger, doing outside sales for small businesses, so B two B sales. At the time, I think that was thirty thousand dollars base. You got a car and a cell phone and a laptop, and then um, unlimited commission. So that's it. That that's kind of how the progression went. It went from just doing a side gig to quitting and going all in, doing one of the hardest types of sales, to then going and working for a bigger you know, Fortune 100 company. And then I started working for smaller companies getting more niche down instead of going with, you know, a million products down to just, you know, five or 10 specific products. I did a 401k sales, payroll sales. And then I went down even more to a really small company selling, you know, two product lines, making even more money As a regional sales manager so the progression just you know every every year 18 months would crush it at my job all right it's time to go to the next one let's 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 step up and learn something new and that was really the progression it was just changing every 18 to 24 months
0: i think it's really interesting to kind of walk through your sales career because you know you're a real estate guy on social media and a lot of people probably know you as like the guy who got 35 doors 5 million dollars assets under management but kind of hearing this full background, you can kind of start to draw lines between some of those skills that you were learning in those early sales jobs and like the things that have probably made you successful in real estate, like negotiations and sales and getting rejected over and over and over again. Before we get into that, I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Can we start to dive into some of the income and maybe some of the expense numbers as well? So I think you mentioned it was like 15 years ago when you were selling those Kirby $1,500 $1, vacuums. Sounds like you're making okay money. What did the expense side of the equation look like? Like were you being frugal? Were you saving? I know you mentioned your dad said always pay yourself first. What did the personal finance situation look like for Patrick?
1: I mean, at the time, I don't even think there was any savings or anything kind of going on. It was just, you know, you're 18, 19, 20 years old, just trying to figure out life. I think I bought my first car brand new. It was just trying to make those brand new car payments and different things like that. And then once I got my first like big W-2 job, that was at Granger. Like I said, I think it was thirty dollars or $31,000. That's when we got an apartment. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we got an apartment together and that was it. But I was still doing side hustles at the time. So I was saving my money. This is at the time when Craigslist was going on, where I was buying iPod Touches, if anyone remembers back in the day, the iPod Touch. So I was going on Craigslist every morning and I was offering anyone that had an iPod Touch $50 to $70 for it. They would be wanting $150 or whatever. Every day I'd get one person to sell me one for $50 to $70 and then I'd go and put it on Amazon for a dollar less than the cheapest one they had on there. And I was making like $50 to $60 every single day doing that. Now I say this because. I ended up getting fired from my job and I had to rely on this side hustle income during this time, which led me into the next one. But so I was always kind of like deploying, saving my money and then figuring out some sort of side gig to make more money just in case things happened and started saving because we had an apartment and we wanted to buy our first house. And that's what we did. It came time to renew our lease and they wanted to, at the time go from like 1000 to $1,300 a month. And we were like, hey, let's try to buy a house. And we had some savings from doing that side hustle and just work. And that's what kind of led us into buying our first property. It wasn't really like looking at everything and saying, hey, I want to put away $200 a month. It was just knowing that at some point I'm going to want to take that next step in life. And how do I start doing that? that was in the beginning. It really wasn't until we got that first house and I started looking and reading more into becoming financially free, becoming financially independent, that I really started looking at more of that income and expenses.
2: And to give listeners a reference point, we we're talking about this first property. Can you walk us through you know, what year is this? What part of the country are we in? What's the kind of the selling price and what that experience was like?
1: Yeah. So this is right around 2012. Again, I was maybe bringing in 50 grand a year, 30,000 W-2, 20,000 in commission. Wife, girlfriend at the time was a line cook at a restaurant. So we are by no means making a ton of money. We actually had to sign that lease because we went to the bank initially and we got denied the loan. So that was fun. We had to go and pay off some credit and. and Do some things like that. But we bought a three bedroom, one and a half bath, single family home. This is in Maryland back in 2012. So the crash had already happened. And this was a foreclosure. Like this was not a nice house. It was like everything worked. It was freshly white painted, but this was not like our dream home or anything. But this was one of those sacrifices that we knew if we made now at 23 or 24. That it would pay dividends down the road. So that's really how it went. Like We got denied the loan, took six months to get everything together to finally get enough credit built up to be able to finally buy it. We buy a foreclosure and we closed January 1st, 2013. So 10 years ago, a decade ago is when we bought our first property. And then buying that first property is what really got us going Because we were just so far ahead of all of our friends and everything else, just buying that first house. That's really what started like, all right, we're set. Now let's let's start figuring out everything. That's when it really became, how do we make more money? How do we save more money? Because now I want to redo this kitchen. I want to redo this bathroom. I want to redo all of this stuff because we didn't buy it that way. And that's when the savings started kicking in. And then the market for housing started going up and we started learning about real estate and learning about rentals and wanting to get into that. And then that was kind of when the perfect storm happened, where we had been working on our house. And that's when everything kind of led into the next part of the journey.
0: So from what I've listened to and what I've read in my research for this episode, it seemed like you didn't really start like getting into into real estate at the level you're at now, Patrick, until like 2017, 2018. So what are the years in between that first purchase and those years look like? like? Were you just grinding in your sales job with these side hustles and your wife was working as well. And you guys are just like socking away as much money as humanly possible and knowing that real estate is the key and you're just like saving out for the next down payment. Or what do those next couple of years look like? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth. One dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show.
1: Great, great, great question. So this is when both of us started to accelerate our careers a little bit my wife she did, she didn't want to be a line cook her whole life so she started going and getting IT jobs and she started progressing through her career i realized that there was a ceiling at my job so i started going and looking for that next job you know all of a sudden i went from a 30k base making 50 to a 50k base making 70 and then a 70k base making 100 so it started progressing like this and this is during that time we're working We're doing all these renovations and everything on our house together. And this is when we started socking away about 10%. So we're putting 10% of our income every month. That's just going away. And then we're still spending everything else, doing all the renovations, doing everything else on this property. And that's when I started listening to podcasts like Bigger Pockets, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and all of that. So during this time, we're fixing our house up. We're getting our hands dirty. We're learning how to do some around the house stuff. We're putting our finances in order because we never wanted to have it to where we didn't get approved for a loan again, since we went through that, like building up that credit, making sure that that's good and starting to build up our income and get that nest egg together. So that's kind of what we did over that period of time. It was just grinding and growing. And if came up time for that review and we didn't get a good review or it wasn't what we thought we deserved, It was, all right, well, on to the next company. Let's just go try something else. And that's really how we kind of elevated and skyrocketed our income and our savings at that time. And it wasn't until 2017. That's when we bought our first investment property was 2017.
2: So when you get ready to buy that first investment property, what was kind of your strategy? I feel like there's certain people who target certain towns and certain kind of footprints. Did you have like a Niche that you felt like you felt comfortable with, the type of houses that you were going after and the type of market that you're going after?
1: Yes. I wanted something in my neighborhood, something that matched what we had bought, like a foreclosure, you know, same as my house, because I knew how much it was going to cost to redo the bathroom, because I redid my bathroom. How much was it going to cost to redo the kitchen? Cause I redid my kitchen. I also just needed something that I could drive by and see every day, you know, because I had already made the biggest purchase of my life, which was my house. Now, I'm getting ready to make the second biggest purchase of my life, which is going to be my first investment property. Like, I want to make sure that I can touch it, see it, feel it. So, we found a foreclosure that was on the same street as ours, like 10 houses down. And I was like, this is perfect. I, I can literally see it every day. And that's kind of what we did. We knew what our house had appraised for. So, we already knew what kind of like a fully remodeled house would appraise for. We knew how much we bought ours for. So, if I could just buy a clone of my house, I already know the numbers. That's kind of what we did. During this time, houses had appreciated a ton. So my house that I bought for 195,000 is now worth like 260,000. So we went to the bank and we took out what's called a home equity line of credit, a HELOC, where they gave us a line of credit on the equity in our house. And we used part of that to help us fund that first investment property. So we had our savings that we're gonna use for the renovations but we used the equity in our house as the down payment to buy our first investment property. So that's really how we started. We used all the hard work for the last four years that we built up in our house. And we used all the hard work for the last four years of saving and combined it all together and just kind of, you could say rolled the dice, but we knew enough because we had already did it on that same block, just with our personal house.
0: Could you just quickly reiterate the HELOC part? Because I think we talked about HELOCs. People have heard of a home equity line of credit, but you just talk about how that works. So there was something about you know the gap between how much equity you had in your house and how much the house was worth, and then like you go to a bank and get the home equity line of credit. But like, you know, how do you do that? What percentage are they giving you? How much money are they actually giving you of the equity you've built up? Just give us all the deets.
1: Yeah, of course. So again, it's a home equity line of credit. Which is the HELOC, it's different from a home equity loan. There's two completely different things. And I like to specify that because one is a loan, one is a line of credit. The line of credit is like a credit card you use it, you pay it off, you can use it again. Okay. And you only pay when you use it. So you could have a $50,000 line of credit and never use it and never pay a penny. You could get a home equity loan and that means they just deposit the 50 grand into your account and i'm using 50 grand as just a nice round number and you have to pay on that every month. So basically how it works is you have your house that you buy for 200,000, you put some work into it, it's worth 300,000. You go to the bank and you say, "Hey, I want to apply for a home equity line of credit." They will do an appraisal on your house and they say, "Hey, your house is worth 300,000." This is great. So what they'll do is they'll typically give you anywhere from 80 to 95% of the value of your property. So if we do some quick math here, 90% just for easy numbers, 300,000 times 90%, 270. So you bought your house for 200, it was worth 300, 270. So the bank will give you a line of credit for $70,000 on your house. So you have your mortgage, then you have the line of credit on top of that. So then you can use that $70,000 for anything you can go buy an investment property you can invest it a lot of people do dumb stuff like buy RVs and boats and cars <laughs> and things like that which i do not recommend but but that's how it works and basically you get 10 years to use it so you can pull that money repay that money and you have 10 years to use it and at the end of the 10 years whatever the balance is that's left on there then you have the for next 10 years to pay that off and you're only paying interest only. So no principal for that first 10 years. So that kind of breaks down how you can access the equity in your home, how you can utilize that to help fund some of your investments, whether it's real estate, whether it's any other sort of business adventure that you want to go into.
2: And just to give people an an idea, a ballpark of what kind of maybe interest rates they'd have to pay, is there any correlation between this And the mortgage rate, or is it kind of variable based on the current economic environment and what going rates are? So, typically,
1: you are going to pay anywhere from a half to a full percent more than what the mortgage rates are, like interest rates are. But a lot of times, they'll do an introductory rate. So, for instance, last year, I took out a home equity line of credit on my primary residence that I'm in now, and they gave us. 2% for 48 months locked in, and then it's prime plus one. So whatever the interest rate is in four years plus 1%, that's what we have to pay. So that's how you can kind of gauge what you're going to get. It's typically a half to a full percentage point more, but again, you're only paying that on what you use.
0: Okay. Okay. So in this example, we'll just use the same like the $200,000 house that you put some money into, now it's worth $300,000. The bank's like, okay, the 90%, so 270 minus the 200 that you have in debt, we're going to give you $70,000. But you know, if you're using that $70,000 as a down payment rather than $70,000, dollars you would save it up in the bank account. Now you have this kind of like additional mortgage payment, kind of you're paying down that line of credit. So what was your thought process going into that next property? Like, Were you going to try to do the same thing you did with that original property where you fix it up, get it reappraised, and then hopefully you can pay back that line of credit in full? Or do you just budget like the price to rent is just so good here that who cares that I'm paying this like extra line of credit payment? Or I guess, what was just the math going into that decision?
1: That's a great question. So the math was that our mortgage payment at the time was going to be like $1,300 a month. And I knew we could get it rented for $2,000 a month. So there was a $700 a month delta in between. And the heloc payment was i think at the time like $225 so if you take that out there's about $475 a month cash flow that was there so i knew that we were going to be able to have the property pay for the heloc expense that i used for the down payment and we were still going to be able to bring in some money once it was all renovated so that's kind of where we were at we bought that first investment property for $175,000 we put 30,000 into it and then your closing cost. So I was in it for 215. It appraised for 290. So we did pretty well. We did, we made 75, basically $75,000 in equity on that first property. And it was bringing in $700 a month. And we were getting about $475 a month afterwards, after all of the expenses and all of that. So that was our first kind of thing. Like we created $75,000 in equity, which is your net worth we're getting $500 a month. This is great. That was the proof of concept. You know, Once we got our renter in there and they actually started making the payments, because that's the thing everyone's so scared about. Like, What happens if I put someone in my house and then they don't pay? Well, they did pay. And then because we redid everything, there, we didn't really have any problems. And it was like, hey, let's do this again. That's kind of what we did. Funny story though, typically when you buy your first investment property, it's got to be the best property. So we made ours the best property. And by making it the best property, we made it better than our house that we were living in right down the street. Like at the end of it, my wife's like, man, this place is nicer than our house. Like, So we actually ended up moving into the house we bought down the street as our investment property. And we rented out our first house. Hmm. That one became the first rental property. We lived there for a year and then we moved. But it was just so funny. Like We just made it so nice. We're like, our rental property has to be the best, best, best. And it turned out to be really nice. But you know, we made some mistakes, but it worked out.
2: And just like speaking of those mistakes and the way you did that first one, like what are the th- ways that you did things differently for the follow-on properties? Like, did you continue to use this HELOC method? Did you try some other methods? Like, what was just kind of different about your strategy after you learned so much from that first one?
1: After the first one, we just learned that one, we had to pick who our ideal tenant was or client was. So who we were catering to in that specific property and then how to do our renovations and more budget style. I don't mean cheap. I just mean it fit inside of our budget to make everything work. People want clean, they want safe, and they want like a fresh feeling. You know, as long as things are fresh, clean, safe, like everything works, everything is good. It looks a little modern. You change out some light fixtures and some cabinet pools and different things like that. Gives it that modern feel. There's a huge market for just clean everything works. If you've looked for places to rent, sometimes some landlords don't even repaint or don't even clean when they put pictures up. You're already doing better just by doing, you know, more than the bare minimum. That's kind of what we did. We took out a HELOC on that property. So we took out a second HELOC and that's what we used to buy our next investment property and our next primary residence. We kept that process going. We always knew that we wanted to buy properties that needed work that had issues. Either tenants were extremely low market rents, property had some deferred maintenance, needed some work. So we were going to come in there. We were going to do the deferred maintenance. We were going to fix up the properties. We were going to put new tenants in there. And by doing that, we increased the value of the property. And then what we did is we refinanced the property And that allowed us to pull our down payment back and our renovation money back. So we were just recycling the same money over and over and over again. And I think that is the key part about real estate that's beautiful, is that you're able to put your money into a property. If you increase the value, you can pull that money back out and then go use that same money to go buy another one. And that's what we were doing. We were recycling over and over again. So that was our strategy because it worked on the first one where we got the HELOC. So we pulled that money out, put it into a new one. Fixed that one up, pulled that money out, put it into a new one. That's all we've been doing. It's just using the same money that we used on our first property to get all the way to where we are today. That amount of money just kind of grows over time.
0: And I know a lot of things changed when you got the 10 unit and I do want to talk about that in a second. But before we get there, I just want to ask. So, are you doing all of the renovations yourself? Are you doing all of the like property management, tenant screening? Are you just like soup to nuts? You guys are handling everything? Yes.
1: That's currently how we are now. Down the road, you know, five years later, I've got someone that does the painting and I have an electrician and I have a plumber, but I'm still doing all the stuff that I could that makes sense for me to do. But we are managing everything. I'm the one that screens all the tenants, I'm the one that takes all the pictures and videos, I'm the one that handles all the leases. Danielle, she's the one that makes sure everybody gets paid. Like it's become more of a well oiled machine, but you can. I mean, we have 35 tenants right now and we manage it all ourselves. If you grow over time and you put your systems and everything in place, it kind of falls into place and becomes a habit.
2: And if you had to estimate now that you do have these systems in place and you're managing 35 tenants, how many hours a week would you say you're having to put into this?
1: If I didn't have any like renovations going on or anything, like if it was just 100%, everything was leased up and we weren't continuing to grow. Maybe an hour, maybe two. Really, it's not as time intensive as people seem to believe. I was just about to say, I haven't gotten one call at like two in the morning, but I did like four <laughs> months ago, but that was in like five years. You know, you really don't have those crazy issues, and then those horror stories. Everybody always remembers the negative instead of the positive.
0: Okay. So now I want to jump back to the 10 unit because I think a lot of people can conceptualize like, you know, I get what Patrick's doing. Like he bought that first house, him and his girlfriend, now wife fixed it up. You know, they understand the HELOC, then you did it again, then you did it again. But jumping from those single family properties to like acquiring a 10 unit, I think I heard you in a couple of podcasts say like that was kind of the changing point. That was the light bulb moment in real estate for you. Could you just kind of talk about that and you know what it took to make that transition?
1: Yeah. It was really crazy because at that particular time, we had those first two properties that we talked about. We had a three unit. That was the next one after that. And then we had a four unit. So I think at the time we had like nine total rentals, only four properties. Part of that 10 unit was a commercial space that was a hair salon. And my wife, Danielle, she would get her hair done there. So she's there at the hair salon and doing What I believe most ladies do at hair salons is they chat (laughs) and they're chatting and come to find out the hair salon is moving to a new place. She goes, well, why are you thinking about moving? She says, oh, well, the landlord's thinking about selling and I don't really know what's going to happen. So Danielle comes back from getting her hair done. She was like, landlord's thinking about selling this place. I was like, holy crap. Well, did you find out the information? Like, I don't know how we're going to buy this, but this is kind of like what the next step is. So, needless to say, she got the information and we started going about looking into how to buy something like this. And that's really how we found it was all through Danielle getting her hair done. So, touche on that. You'll find leads anywhere. Anywhere. Huh. Anywhere. So, the purchase price was $850,000. The seller was not willing to do any seller financing or anything. That's when the seller will hold some equity so you can bring less money to the table. They weren't willing to do any of this. So just imagine an $850,000 purchase. I have to come up with 25%, which is $215,000. I'm like, where am I getting this money from? Like, I don't have 215000 just lying around. But I did have a couple properties in my portfolio. The prices had increased quite a bit, and it was our first house and our first investment property. So what we did was We sold those first two houses, we paid off the home equity lines of credit, and we took the profits from those two and we used that for the down payments. That's really how we were able to do it. We sold those two houses, combined that into the down payment. We also did a refinance on one of the other ones. So at the time, we had only renovated like nine apartments. So here we are buying 10, like just doubling everything. It was really crazy. And actually, the week before we bought this is when the company that I worked for for five years and I decided to go our separate ways. So, a week before we close on this, I no longer have a job and we're going all in on this 10 unit apartment building. That's what we did. I mean, I was over there every single day. This is an hour from where I live, over there every single day, just soup to nuts, taking all the experiences and things that we learned over the last three years and starting to put it into play that was the key that really took us to the next level. Because a lot of people would just play in that single family or one to two, three unit game their whole life. And our goal was only to get to 10 by the time I was 35. Here we are buying 10 in one purchase. It was wild.
2: And for those who are interested in something like that, what are the mechanics that are different when you move to something that's like a 10 room? Is it or sorry, it's a 10 unit. Are are you able to do a 1031 exchange from those other properties to this one? Is the mortgage the same kind of mortgage? Are you able to go to the same kind of bank? Is everything the same when you're buying a 10 unit property or is it a lot different than your normal single family home?
1: Everything is completely different. So I had to learn all new things. That's what we did. We sold those two properties and we 1031 exchanged into that. And what that is, is that's when the government will allow you to take tax-deferred profits from the sales and put it into a new property as long as the total cost is more. So we were able to combine two property sales into this one. So we did do that, but now you also have to go get commercial financing. Your mortgage lender who you're buying your house with is not the same guy that you're buying a 10-unit apartment building with. Then you have a different appraisal. The guy comes by the house, snaps a couple pictures, and a week or two later, you have an appraisal. No, this takes 30 to 45 days. They have to do an area. They they look at the area of the growth, all the jobs that are coming, all the businesses that are there. You have to do an environmental study. And the appraisals for these are all based on the income. It's not based on like comps like you would get if you're buying a regular house. So there's a whole slew of things that are all different, so we had to learn all of this. I mean, an inspection instead of you paying three hundred dollars for an inspection, now it's three thousand. Like everything's thousands of dollars. It's like, oh, appraisal, that's three thousand. Oh, inspection, that's three thousand. You know, so before you even get into all of this, you're probably six to ten thousand dollars in, not even knowing if you're going to have a deal or not. So it is completely different and the process is very unique on going through with something like this. And it it takes a really long time. I mean, they have to vet you. You have to have a net worth equal to the value of the property. So this is where partnerships come in, where we partnered up with my dad on something like this, because he had that net worth to be able to sign on to something like this. So you step into this whole new realm of things, but it was all 100% worth it.
0: And so obviously this had to have been some kind of a home run deal for you to go in 1031 those original 2 properties. You said you refied another one like the numbers on this must have been phenomenal for you to kind of take all those risks and at the same time you lose your job or you quit your job, I'm not exactly sure how it shook out, but a week before this thing closed. So can we kind of dive into the numbers on this thing and you know hopefully it was a home run because now it sounds like you no longer have a six figure sales job that you were relying on before for down payments and things. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So it it ended up being a home run. It actually ended up being better than we had initially even thought it could be, surprisingly enough. So when we bought this, we we paid $850,000 for it. At the time, it was bringing in about $7,000 a month in gross rents. So over the next 18 months, I'll be doing one renovation at a time. So we'd take one apartment, redo the entire thing, put a new tenant in next apartment redo the entire thing so then people are starting to churn some people that were in apartments were moving into the new ones because they really like them so we kept some tenants some people left and over the course of us doing this the rent started to increase significantly so when i bought this i thought 12000 a month was like the max we'd be able to get this property up to well A year and a half later, we brought it up to 14,250. So we more than doubled the rents. And again, like I was saying, these properties are based on the income. So the more money the property makes, the more the value is. So it exceeded what I thought we were going to be able to do. So we went back and it was time to refinance. Mind you, I had that 250,000 tied up in here, and then we spent about another 100 of renovations. Now this hundred is straight coming out of our pocket. So this another $100,000 we put into it. So I'm $350,000 into this property. So we go to do the appraisal again, $3,000 takes 30 to 45 days. The property ended up appraising for $1,725,000 wow. after 18 months. Yeah. So We had a loan at 600, we got a new loan at 1.1 million. So we got a check for $500,000 at the closing table, half a million dollar check. And then we still have another $625,000 left in. And that was with it at the time. And we still had four units that weren't completely renovated. So we're in the process of doing that. So I think in the next six months, that 14,000 number will, is going to be closer to like 16, 16, five. So this is going to be like a $2 million property when we're all said and done.
2: That's incredible. And obviously, y'all got kind of the inside scoop from the, the hair salon. And I was kind of curious, like, why does you think someone else didn't get in there and see that? And also, I think what helped with the context is this commercial space, because we're talking about like, you know, tenants coming in, renting, but there's this hair salon part. Is that adding a kind of different layer to the income that you're getting? Or, you know, what did that turn out to end up being after the hair salon move?
1: yeah that's a great question. Things could have went a lot differently on this property, and we did kind of get the inside you know scoop from the hair salon and all that. Actually, one of our friends was looking for a space for a hair salon. It was previously a hair salon, so we had them come and move. The previous woman was paying nine hundred dollars a month. The woman that we bought it from signed a lease like a month before we closed for fourteen. something happened about nine months in, so it our friend came in and took it over for 2,500. So we went from 900 to 14 to 25, just like that, because it was knowing the space, knowing the area, finding the perfect person. And that's really what real estate's a lot about is seeing opportunities where others don't, uh, envisioning things or having the opportunities when they come being able to strike. And that's what we were able to do. So that's kind of what happened with that commercial space. So with this property, the woman actually did have another person. I initially offered her seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the property, and then it was eight hundred thousand. But during this time, she had met me. She had met Danielle. She had met my dad. We walked the property. I had talked to her a ton of times. She grew up in the area. My dad grew up in the area. They knew a lot of the same people, and her and her husband had built up this rental portfolio. And her daughters didn't want to take it over, so. She felt like selling it to us was kind of passing the torch to the next generation. Like it was her and her husband going through this all over again. So I called her up, and I told her like, "Hey, 800 we take it." She goes, "Well, I have an offer for 850, and I'm going to take it. I haven't signed it yet." And I was like, "Look, I really want the property. If you're telling me it's 850, I'll pay the 850." And she says, "Patrick. She's like, I'd love to sell it to you and Danielle and your dad. If you can do the 850, I'd rather sell it to you. And that's when I was like, okay. It didn't just like magically fall into our lap. It was one year from the time that Danielle was getting her hair done and telling us about this to the time we closed. That was a 12-month period of time. And that's a lot of relationship building. That's a lot of figuring things out, finding things out. The deal got hung up because there was a variance issue and the county wasn't going to approve the rental licenses and these new things changed. Like, yes, it was a home run deal, but it was a year before we even bought it. And then it was another year before the County even acknowledged that, you know, the addition on the back was right. And then it was, I just had the health inspection to get my rental licenses and I've owned the property for two years now. So there's been headaches. Like there's been work that's went like behind the scenes, a lot of heavy lifting, but I think a lot of people just would have gave up. Like, oh, I need to do a variance. No. Oh, I need to do this. Like, I'm backing out. Oh, she wants a hundred thousand dollars more than I initially wanted to pay for it. Does she really have another buyer? Is she just trying to get 50 grand out of me? Like I could have looked at all those different things and just walked away. But because of the experience that I had with the market, with doing these other properties, it led me to know, like, I really believe in this one. I think and I'm fairly certain it's a good deal. And it ended up being a really, really, really great deal. This property is going to make us over a million dollars. That's one property.
0: Man, you are just absolutely crushing it. We are starting to round out the episode as we come to the end of our time. But like I said before, I'm just seeing so many parallels. I know you mentioned like the reason why you were maybe so persistent was from the previous properties. Maybe it's from selling those little helicopter things. Like it's it's just getting over the hurdle, getting over the nose. Like something comes up, you just kind of figure out a way to get through it and get onto the next thing. So. Seriously, appreciate you coming on. And I know you share everything super publicly. I think I just saw you post recently. I think I pulled up the numbers here, actually. In April 1st, 2018, you collected 1450 in rent. And this past April, 2023, you collected $34,450 in rent. Five years, five years. And you're looking at a $33,000 per month increase. So dude, just kudos to you and what you and Danielle have been able to do. And thank you for sharing and documenting your journey. And for those who want to follow along and kind of witness the documentation and hear all the awesome stuff you got to share and you got going on where is the best place or places for them to do that
1: Thank you guys so much for having me on The best place is really our Instagram page which is rental property couple share things answer questions every Friday and Saturday all of that also have a podcast that's more real estate related so if anyone's listening that you know wants to get an education and kind of all the stuff we just talked about it's called the real FI podcast and you can you know follow us on all the different places just like you guys and geared kind of more towards that real estate type of thing. But I'm happy to answer anyone's questions, reach out. We share everything. I'm an open book. I think that's the best way to be for everybody You know, as transparent as possible to help one another. I don't really see financial independence and financial freedom as a competition. There's enough to go around for everybody. So why not share the secrets?
2: Well, like Cody said, thank you so much for coming on the show, Patrick. It's an awesome story and uh, we're excited to have the listeners get to enjoy your story appreciate it guys have a good one thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the five show if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts share this with a friend and also don't forget you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at the also don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone